Welcome to the OMR Podcast, where we go inside the mind of some of the biggest names in the digital and tech scene. My name is Scott Peterson, and I am an editor at OMR. In today's episode, my colleague Heidi Stammer sits down with founding editor at Wired Magazine, Kevin Kelly. Kevin is also a best-selling author, a student of Asian business and culture, and a writer for the New York Times, The Economist, Time, and Harper's Magazine, to name but a few. Heidi and Kevin recently sat down for a chat at the TNW conference in Amsterdam and talked about what the future holds for tech in the West and in Asia, how it is that technologies like the internet go from the fringes of society to the mainstream, and why it is he hopes that we in the West are wrong and China is right. This is the Omar Podcast with Kevin Kelly. Enjoy. It's a real privilege to speak with you today. Thank you for making the time, Kevin. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, great. <laughs> so, um, a little bit about your past. Um, Wired was first published in 1993, which was a full quarter of a century ago now. Um, and at that point, it was touted as the rolling stone of technology. Uh, what do you remember most vividly about the initial days? And is there anything that you have changed? Hmm. In the very beginning, Wired was considered a very unlikely success because um, technology was not cool yeah. then. Um, it was seen, particularly this internet stuff, as the realm of teenage boys in their basement. And many experts and uh, particularly owners of media believed that it would never become mainstream. And fundamentally, we had a very contrarian view, which was that, no, this was the center of culture, and our hope was that we would make technology cool. And I think that's one of the things that we did. Mm -hmm. And um, you have this amazing ability in your writing mm -hmm. to kind of observe and synthesize data in a way that brings clarity to a lot of confusion, mm -hmm. particularly, you know, in those early days of the internet and continuing to today. Um, how do you, do you, is this a talent? Did you always have this? How do you develop that? Um, do you, ideas just come to you or does it take a lot of reflection? How does that process work? Yeah, it's a fair thing to try and examine how I uh, operate, but, but I think what I'm trying to do is to generalize from very, very specific things that I have experienced. So as much as possible, I like to try the new technologies and experience them myself in order to abstract them. Mm -hmm. And then in that abstraction, try to bring it back down to the concrete. And so the early writings in Wired were based on the fact that I had been online from 1982, for almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so that 10 years of being online and actually creating their first public access to the internet and then trying out virtual reality myself in 1989 were things that gave me a way to try, gave me the experience to try to abstract and make general and then come back into the specifics. So. Part of my process and part of my job is to try these things early on so that I have some bearing to try and make the abstraction. Mm -hmm. And then 
the journalistic thing of trying to bring it back to people's lives today. Mm-hmm. So the tech tech guinea pig of all the newest interviews. Yeah, in, in some ways, because um, I am an early adopter in a kind of a professional way, but in fact, a lot of my, the technology they wind up using is not so early. I mean, you know, I'm still old school, mostly email guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a phone and a smartphone, but I it's not my home. Um, and other things come through the office, but they don't stick. So I'm very picky about things that I actually use every day. Um, so while it's necessary for me to try all the new stuff, most of it is not very good. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of almost a definition of, of technology. In our common way that we use technology, we usually mean it about the stuff that doesn't work very well yet. Once technology works well, it becomes invisible and we don't even see it and we don't think about it. Mm-hmm. That's the real successful technology is the stuff that we don't even know it's there. Yeah, and a lot of times <clears throat> after the fact, it seems so apparent that that was, right. had to happen or that would be right. successful, but oftentimes when you're actually in the moment, it's right. not as apparent. So if I say, you know, do you like technology? You'll, you'll think of, you won't think of it's this table. You won't think of electricity. You won't think of antibiotics, you won't think of all these other things, or even the internet, those aren't technology. Today's technologies, all this, you know, virtual reality, um, artificial intelligence, all the things that don't work very well yet. Mm -hmm. Well, to that point, talking about um, technology that isn't necessarily digital, Mm -hmm. um, you have cataloged a number of these items with your a project, Cool Tools, mm-hmm. um, via your website and also a self-published book um, in 2013 where you share a daily item from kind of a mushroom growing kit to mm-hmm. something like a soda stream right. machine. Um, what was the genesis of that? And, and do you sure. ever think you'll run out of Cool Tools <laughs> to highlight? <laughs> yeah, so um, that's, uh, yeah, that's from an early obsession uh, that I had as a kid of um, trying to make things. I'm a maker, which they would call me a maker today. That's not what we thought of ourselves, but I was always making things. I made a chemistry lab. I made a nature museum in my basement when I was a kid. And so I got involved in trying to um, find tools and interesting things that were handy to to do things very Mm -hmm. early on, which brought me to the whole earth catalog, which was invented by Stuart Brand in 1968. 50 years ago and um, that was a catalog that listed all the tools that you didn't know about and each of those tools turned out to be kind of a a gateway into a world of possibilities so knowing that there was a leather making tool that you could sew leather with was suddenly provoked the idea that what, what could I make with leather or I could make things with leather what what do I want to do so just even just the knowledge that tool existed was suddenly open up possibilities. And so I became interested in, and I eventually worked at the Whole Earth Catalog myself, mm-hmm. collecting these tools, explaining why they were useful, and introducing these possibilities. And then, for various reasons, when the internet came along, the Whole Earth Catalog ceased to be as useful as it was. For a while, before the internet, the only way you could ever find out some of these things was the Whole Earth Catalog. There was mm-hmm. no other way. Mm-hmm. There was no internet. 
Libraries didn't have this. So that was a very, very, very valuable resource. When the internet came along, suddenly all that kind of really rarefied, esoteric, niche knowledge was available, and there was less reason to have it on a catalog. But I also found out that the, eventually the internet became so huge that while that information was there, it was becoming more and more difficult to actually find the best. Mm -hmm. And my site, Cool Tools, was a way to curate term they use now mm -hmm. to curate the best of these and then eventually to put them in a book where there was only the very very best so it was um full circle coming back to the original whole earth catalog in this case not because there wasn't enough knowledge but because there was too much of it mm -hmm. yeah that's it's actually interesting the the life cycle there about um now with the internet being able to really connect with these niche audiences mm -hmm. in a very targeted way whereas mm -hmm. yeah before there's the the land the gold rush of of, mm -hmm. of information and now right, right. Um, more of this targeting where you can connect with people in that way um and it sounds like actually some of your um in, interest in discovery was encouraged at a young age than if your parents were allowing you to do <laughs> chemistry experiments in the basement mm. <laughs> and things it was like a that. different time it was in the 50s and and early 60s when um there was a lot more freedom for kids we roamed you know f three or four or five miles from our home when we were in elementary school, just riding our bicycles. And my parents had no idea where we are, and that was just a different time period. Mm -hmm. And so we had chemistry labs and chemicals, uh, you know, and unsupervised. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, and, and, and a lot of that did come later on in um, kind of trying to promote that free-form play with my own kids, trying to not... Be, be the helicopter parent or always hovering and laying, letting them kind of do something where we weren't even aware of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the predictions mm -hmm. you've made which have come to fruition. Mm -hmm. um, so back in 2007, um, you were talking about the next 5,000 days of mm -hmm. the web because we had just experienced the first mm -hmm. 5,000 days. Now we're at around 4,000 days in and um, wanted to check back with you, see how you feel about those predictions and what surprised you. It seemed like a lot of the things you were talking about were very on target. You talked about kind of a global computer or mind with humans documenting mm -hmm. everything via photo and video, which mm -hmm. we certainly mm -hmm. have seen via social media and um, you know, tracking people across different websites throughout the web. Um, if you could talk a little bit more about that. And how sure. Um, I'm not sure if you heard my talk yes. yesterday mm -hmm. where I was trying to talk about what's next after the web in these With the remaining, mesh. remaining yeah. thousand days. <laughs> um, yeah, and I call it the mesh for lack of a better term, which is the... Um, it's kind of like maybe one way to think about it is a digit. We're going to digitize all the other things in our lives besides the documents and the human connections, which we've already done mm -hmm. with Google and Facebook. And now um, we're going to kind of make a mirror world of the physical world and places and things that will have a digital twin that we can experience in many ways, including putting a pair of glasses on and seeing this layer 
over the real layer of the world. So we're not in a virtual world, we're in the real world, but we have these virtual layers, virtual ghosts that we can see that will also be the same world that robots and self-driving cars see. And so mm -hmm. um, it's a very big thing and it will enable us to um, use the same algorithms approach to find new products or to derive new benefits um, from this world that is now machine readable, which means that we can apply the same kind of techniques that we did with information and people to extract out new understandings, new relationships, new businesses, new services, based around all the things and places that we have, rather than just the information and the people. Mm -hmm. and, and given this vision of the future, yeah. um, if you were, say, a young person just starting mm. out in your career right now, where would you think there's an opportunity? Where would you um, want to be focusing? What problems should they be trying to solve? Or what type of technology? There's a couple ways to answer that. Like if you were giving advice to someone and um, they were interested in sort of um, making money, I could say several things. <laughs> What's th that? I could, I could say several things. Yeah. Um, right now, people with PhDs in AI mm -hmm. are being hired at a million dollars a year. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, but the problem with that is, of course, is that unless you are unless you've already committed to that, um, by the time, if you're just in high school, by the time you get to, to that point, there'll be something completely new and different. Mm -hmm. So that'll be hot. So I think it's a little bit misguided to try and aim for these um, hot careers because it changes so fast. Mm -hmm. And I, th and I, I'm a big proponent of being, of training yourself how to learn rather than learning something that you think is going to be mm -hmm. needed. Because I think you're going to need that in any case, even if you are hired as a PhD student in AIs, you're going to have to be learning something completely new that nobody even knows. So for me, the, what I would stress, the thing you want to graduate with is knowing, optimizing how you learn. And for bonus points, you want to come to understand how you individually learn best. Mm -hmm. And this is actually a very difficult thing to do. This is very few of us, even I have not figured out exactly how to optimize my own learning because it's because it requires a lot of Knowledge from other people requires mm -hmm. teachers and guides, requires a curriculum that we don't have. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is complete unknown territory. But if you are able to, to really figure out how you can optimize your own learning in all the different situations that you'll have, um, that is the meta skill that you want to, to focus on. And um, so, but for your own learning, uh, how do you pursue that? Is it just avid reading? Um, you know, where do you draw inspiration? Yeah, so... Um, I think a lot of people turn to you for inspiration. Sure. <laughs> so, 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 so I do a lot of reading. I do do a lot of reading, and I try to read as technical stuff as I can. 
science is really the only news. I try to avoid uh, reading a lot of news because I think news, as we think of it normally, is very unhelpful and very distracting. And I don't mean just in terms of social media. I mean that by nature it's reporting on things that are outliers and, and you don't mm -hmm. really get a good sense of what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. The second thing I do a lot of is I, I do a lot of travel and I, b I firmly believe in travel as a means of learning. So I travel to learn, mm -hmm. not to relax, not to um, be challenged by physical things, but to see different ways of looking at the world, getting new ideas, and also to have my mind changed, to keep my mind flexible. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and again, I don't mean traveling like to here in Amsterdam. I mean traveling like to the with the nomads in Mongolia, or you know, um, going to the deserts of Rajasthan, and where things are very, very different. And mm -hmm. so that um, keeps my mind flexible. And I think the third thing is I try to hang out with millennials, with twenty-year-olds, as much as possible, because they are thinking differently. Um, and they're, what they're thinking about is what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so not just my own kids and their friends, but mm -hmm. people in China, um, people here if I can. So I, I like to talk to 20-year-olds about what their dreams are and who their heroes are and what they're passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, and so you mentioned travel. I know you um, have an intense interest in, in Asia. Um, and could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I, um, after high school, I basically became a college dropout and I went to Asia, and I turned Asia into my graduate studies program. And after eight years, I awarded myself an honorary degree in Asian studies. Um, and I was present in Asia in the early 70s and on through the 70s um, at a moment when it was transforming from an area of deep poverty into becoming some of the wealthiest mm -hmm. lands on the planet. And so that gave me, I, I derived my sense of optimism from seeing, witnessing that firsthand, seeing the power of what technology could do. But I also just fell in love with the otherness of Asia. Um, and also it's, it was, it was very convenient for me because they're, they have a different sense of privacy. They're very open in that sense. And I could see everything that's happening and everything was kind of visible. So um, what Asia gave me was a sense of a different way of doing things and that would vary from country to country. And um, a, uh, a bias towards um, optimism and progress, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which today is still present. So Asia is far more optimistic about the future than US or Europe is on, on, on average, an average person. They're much more inclined to think that tomorrow will be better than today and to believe that. And um, I think that's very instrumental and part of what I'm about is trying to convince people that progress is real. There really has been progress. It's still going on. It's very likely to continue. I firmly believe that tomorrow will be better than today, but by not by very much, just a tiny, tiny, tiny <laughs> bit. And um, 
that that's likely to continue as far as we can see and that we should um, we should arrange our lives and arrange our policy and arrange our nations and arrange the world to be ready to, to exploit that progress that we're, that we're seeing. And, and when you talk about Asia, are you thinking predominantly about China or the broader region? I'm thinking about the broader region. I do spend a lot of time in China just because of its sheer scale. It has to be reckoned with. And also because most of my fans are in China. Mm -hmm. I, had, I was very lucky to have my books translated mm -hmm. into Chinese at the right time to be adopted by the big heroes, you know, Jack Ma and Pony Ma, talk about my book influencing their own startups, which are now humongous giants, Alibaba and Tencent. Mm -hmm. And so um, I... Uh, and, 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 and there's something happening in China that's big enough with a common language that I think is going to become not just a technological economic powerhouse, but I believe also a cultural influence on the world. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to see exactly what that will be. Um, but they are already leading the world in many things like you know, digital money, there's no cash. Um, robotics to some extent and I think there could be a player in AI and VR and, and AR in a big way um, that would make a dent in, in the culture of the rest of the world. And uh, your vision of the future um, of openness and interconnectedness is kind of predicated on openness of the internet or the web whatever form it takes in the future. Um, do you see there being uh, more openness in China? Do you think that will just take time? or what do you That is a really good question in the sense that I don't know. Um, there is definitely a sense that there's a diverging fork in, in the road. Um, and at the moment, China has a very different and alien attitude about um, information than the West does, mm -hmm. and it, um, it seems incompatible with us. And as we imagine a future of China, for a Westerner like myself, an American, it becomes very difficult to imagine how anybody would be happy in a society where everything is being monitored by the government. Mm -hmm. um, I am trying to um, imagine a world in which we're wrong, we, the, uh, the American, the Western is wrong, and that in fact China figures out a way to modify the way that they monitor everybody in a way that is not just productive, because we can see how that could be. I mean, you could see an engineered society where having information about everybody was actually very, very productive in terms of optimizing the policy, but that it also was um, something that made people comfortable and happy. And I think there might be ways to, to do that. I call it covalence, where you can watch who watches you. There's a two-way flow of information that would be comfortable for people like the Chinese. And um, so the, there was a way in which they had total surveillance that they were content with. Mm -hmm. 
All right. So again, those words don't seem to make any sense to anybody in the West. We kind of like, <laughs> how could that be? That yeah. I'm not going to be happy. And I think the Westerners may not be happy. But I also think that there is a slightly different attitude in the Orient. And um, uh, it may be possible for them to devise ways that they collect total information about people and their behavior and what they do in order to optimize policies and, um, and performances and services. Um, and while it, it's very difficult for us to imagine it now, I think we should not close our minds to that possibility. Mm -hmm. Do you think that change will come uh, more from outside forces or more uh, from within I think it will come from within China. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the people in China, the, you know, there was a stereotype of them as kind of being isolated, uninformed, um, brainwashed. That is just so far from the truth right now that in many ways, the typical Chinese young person is, can be very, very informed and very aware of what's going on um, and very sophisticated. And I think, you know, they, they see these choices coming up. They understand what the um, consequences are. Um, and so I think that change would come from within China itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, so on the flip side, there's China, mm -hmm. um, a bit more closed off. In, in Europe now, you know, mm -hmm. they're struggling with implementing GDPR mm -hmm. every day you're getting new notices yeah, yeah. about opting in uh, and um, so uh, do you have thoughts now about um, with with the coming of the mesh how do how do people balance um, you, you see the benefits in this transparency of openness but also wanting to guard their privacy Social media is less than 5,000 days old, so we are just at the beginning of understanding how it's used and what it's good for and how best practices might be implemented. I think this is a necessary correction, um, the, the GDPR that we're implementing. I think it's good. I think it will be modified over time. There are certain aspects of what Europe does, like the right to be forgotten, which is just completely crazy in my mind. <laughs> but. There are other uh, aspects of, of you know consent and um, uh, opting in and, and things like that that are necessary and good and by the way are being endorsed by the big conglomerate U.S. companies because it's good for them. It actually keeps out competition. Mm -hmm. I think the idea mm -hmm. that this is going to enable European versions of things is completely wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's actually in that respect, a detriment to... There's been a lot of companies shutting down because right, they just can't Right, because they can't handle it. And standards. It raises a bar. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, generally, big companies like regulation because mm -hmm. it's, it keeps down competition. Mm -hmm. So, but I think overall, on the other end, I think it's good for Europeans and the rest of the world. Um, so, I, I think regulation is necessary and good, but it... The main thing is you just don't want to have premature regulation. You want to have it come later. And this is kind of later. And there should be, we should think of this as version one that can be amended and, and as we try it out and use it and see how it works. So I think 
it shouldn't be the end of anything. It should still be a beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, and we should evaluate it and see if it's doing what it wants, what we want it to do. Do you think it will inhibit uh, innovation in Europe? Yes, because it, in general, will inhibit innovation. And I think Europe will be hit harder by it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's always a balance. It's always a balance. Um, and I think, uh, I, I think there was a, you know, I think we needed to have some regulations about understanding data. I, I'm not, again, I'm not sure that the regulations that we have are what is needed. I think there are regulations, and I think that can only be determined by trying it. Mm -hmm. and, and you touched briefly on kind of the big four. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of people talking about how they've uh, too much concentration mm -hmm. of power. We should yeah. maybe take up antitrust right. uh, processes. Um, how, what is your feeling on that? I think that's, yeah, I think it's completely unnecessary and harmful. I, I think um, these are natural monopolies. Um, uh, something I've argued from the days of, of Microsoft onward. Um, these are natural monopolies that have very short time span relative. Um, there's natural disruptions that will disrupt their dominance. They won't go away, but their dominance can be disrupted because it's very, very temporary. And um, uh, usually when antitrust issues come up, it's already too late. I mean, it's basically, um, it's, it doesn't work. And I think Microsoft was harmed unnecessarily by uh, the antitrust there because it was already evident that Google was, was displacing their dominance. And so, um, no, the antitrust thing, is, I, I think the old definitions need to be amended, but the, it's really hard to show harm and, um, because I think those natural mm -hmm. monopolies bring benefits overall, net benefits. Mm -hmm. and so I need one more yep. question. And so, um, and so you kind of are the eternal optimist mm -hmm. right. when it comes to technology. A lot of people mm -hmm. see the negatives right. and you continue to be a proponent of mm -hmm. the positive aspects. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how do you maintain that, that optimism? And I'm optimistic because of history. Mm -hmm. I think if, if anybody looks at the actual evidence, not the news, but looks at the evidence of scholarly, academic, unbiased, peer-reviewed evidence of the past, you have to be an optimist because things have been getting better. And, and if I give you a time machine and ask you where you want to live in the past, the further in the past you go, the worse it gets. And nobody wants to travel even back to 1978. And mm -hmm. so um, that's just another indication that um, Progress is real, and, it, and this progress could end tomorrow. That's possible, but very unlikely. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it could all of a sudden, after 200 years, it could stop next year. It's possible, but unlikely. It's much more statistically likely that that will continue for another, at least another 10 years, maybe another 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, that's where my optimism comes from. And so another book in the works? No, I don't operate that way. I'm working on an article for Wired uh, on this new mesh, um, mm -hmm. and we'll take it one step to see if there's a uh, see if there's enough for an article, and then if there's too much for an article, then then a book. But I don't know. 
Great. Well, thank you for your time sure, today. Very welcome. Really appreciate your insights. Sure. Buzz.